listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. It's very normal for practitioners to be in situations where they experience doubt. We've talked about this a couple of times over the last few weeks. This idea of doubt leading us actually into a fairly um, fertile ground, a field uh, that we can cultivate for awakening. Now, doubt is uh, the reason why I say it's normal, I mean, I, in my uh, experience in monkdom, uh, back when I was in monk school, um, it was really common, actually, to have, uh, you know, the, my Dharma brothers and sisters just pretty much taking everything that was said as gospel and trying to memorize and trying to, you know, it was, it was very interesting to me. Um, and, uh, I, of course, trying to be a good Buddhist monk, I didn't want to you know, really say anything, didn't want to rock the boat, but it didn't, it didn't make much sense to me uh, that we shouldn't be doubting. In fact, doubting of what was being taught, doubting every single thing about our experience made a lot of sense. I mean, how else are you supposed to test the water? What I learned was uh, I, I carried a kind of a quiet contentiousness into my dokusan experience with my various teachers that I had along, along the path. And to a person, they all kind of came back at me when I would express doubts. And they would always say, well, hey, tell me a little bit about that. Tell, tell me a little bit about your doubt. And so I would express, express my doubts and so forth, and then their response invariably would kind of settle into this place of, that is so healthy. Just don't get caught by it. And I thought that was so powerful. In other words, that we doubt. Doubting is good. But that you not get caught by your doubt. Getting caught by our doubt means that we cling to it. And in the clinging to our doubt, what do we do? We stop tilling the soil, so to speak. And it's just, I mean, stuff grows out of an untilled field. An arrow can fly even if the shaft is, you know, bent a little or the feathers aren't quite right or that there's a little bit of imbalance. And even if it's launched poorly, it can still, you know, it can still get there. But the real work here is to figure out how to, if you will, get the arrow true, get it flying straight towards the target. How is it that we can cultivate this field, this opening that we have? How is it, in fact, that we can actually meet our experience fully? How is it that we can meet the teaching fully with doubt, except not get caught by the doubt. 
I had a, an email from um, a, a practitioner, and by the way, I encourage this. If, if during the week you ever feel, you know, kind of uh, compelled, okay, here's a question that kind of keeps coming up, you by all, all means can, can email me. Uh, if they come through email, I guarantee you one thing, it will probably be a one-sentence response because I have the, a lot of emails that come through every day, and so what I do typically in, in my inbox or whatever, I'll just kind of fire them out. So if that's something that appeals to you at all, and for some people it does, by all means. Um, if you have a more extensive question, uh, my recommendation is that we schedule a time to meet. Uh, and we do that, you know, individual practice interviews, or what we call docus-on. Uh, that can actually help uh, uh, make sure that we're tilling, tilling the soil, both of us together. You're tilling your field, I'm tilling mine. We are all together tilling that soil, shooting the arrow, creating, creating as, as much direction as we possibly can, even in the face of doubt. So the question was, that came through email, what is doubt? And my response that uh, might be interesting for us to kind of kind of play with a little bit is doubt is wonder with an attitude. So if we take wonder, which is actually quite appropriate, wonder is open. Wonder is not knowing. Wonder is not sure. Wonder lacks certitude. Wonder lacks attachment. <coughs> Doubt, on the other hand, has got a little bit in there. Might be subtle. If it's major doubt, you're pretty much, you're doing, I uh, know. And that's fine. It is fine to attach because it will eventually exhaust you. So if that's something, you know, this is a really great aspect of the teaching, there really isn't any way you can screw up. You can have all the all the wonder with an attitude that you want, and that attitude can be as intense as you want it to be. My recommendation is you kind of try turning the other direction. It might be helpful. Certainly it's a shortcut, but with great doubt, eventually comes great awakening. So, as we sit tonight, can you sit with your doubt? Can you sit with your wonder? Can you sit with ease as well as tension? Can they both be just fine? This is like that question that I pose periodically. Can it be beautiful? Can your experience be beautiful even when it's not pretty? Even when there's not stuff just the way you want it to be? Can you still be okay with that? Can you begin to kind of clear out preferences, not by pushing them away, but just by being really, really clear about what those preferences are? The clarity that you can hold your preferences with allows them to free themselves. The clarity with which you can observe your attachments allows them to open of their own accord. That clarity, that wonder without an attitude, actually allows us to open. It allows for that field to be tilled. It allows for a blooming 
of awakening to occur. We get to bring, it, bring that consciously into the world as an offering. It's not that your awakening hasn't always been there. That flower of awakening, that flower of enlightenment has always been there. It has never not been there. But when we begin to bring our attention to that flowering, suddenly that flowering becomes a bloom that we can literally offer to the world. And that's when enlightenment comes home. asked one of the great questions today. Uh, a young man said, uh, you're a Buddhist, right? And whenever that comes at you, you know you're getting something, something, something interesting is about to happen. I said, I said, well, depends who you talk to. He says, well, do, do you believe in God? Do Buddhists believe in God? And my response kind of su surprised me um, uh, in that I said, very quickly, I said, well, it depends what you call God. And I said, what do you call God? How do you identify God? And he just stopped and started nodding. He goes, well, it's, you know, it's, 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 you know, if, if, uh, and it just kind of kept going like that. And then he kind of started to crack himself up a little bit. And I was not trying to do anything, to, but just watch, just be right there for this, this young person's, you know, inquiry. And I said, do you, do you see God as a man with a flowing white beard and lo a long mane of hair, uh, you know, not a mohawk, but just actually really nice mane of, you know, and he, and he goes, oh, no, actually, no. No, it's, it's, it's spirit. I said, ah. So are you asking me if I believe in spirit as a Buddhist? I said, yeah, actually, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> and so I said, well, that depends how you define spirit. <laughs> and then he, you know, kind of hemmed and hawed a little bit more. And, and he could tell at this point I was messing with him a little bit, but... It was, it was really quite fun because, uh, you know, how, what is spirit? And then he did the same type of thing. Well, spirit, spirit, spirit is, spirit, it's, it's infinity. I'm like, ah, very clever. Then what is not spirit? What is not God? And he went, oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Huh, I have no idea what you're saying. Okay. <laughs> kind, of, kind of walked on, ate a sandwich. But I kind of think that, in a really helpful way, um, illustrates maybe one of the uh, approaches towards this practice that any one of us is offered. And that is, it's not about God. This is not about, there's, there's nothing in this practice or in this version of the Dharma, in the infinite smile version of the Dharma, that is interested, even interested in answering those questions. They tend to lead us on this path to attachment, 
They have nothing to do with the practice, which is actually how to become the best possible human you can be, really. And that's nothing, that's nothing unique to Infinite Smile. I mean, that's, that's what all wisdom traditions at their best, hopefully, are trying to offer us a way. They're trying to offer us a way as opposed to a belief system. Now, I've talked about that, you know, enough. But uh, it's still, I think, quite fascinating. What, what is it that we are, you know, really, really doing here? What's the next book? Which was a, a topic of conversation um, among a group of uh, Sangha members recently. Uh, the next book, if it ever shows up, will most likely, see we could, what we could do is write a really super duper short one that's basically just four phrases. And that is, the phrases are recognize, know the resistance, release, and engage. That's the whole teaching right there. It's it. The whole thing. We recognize our suffering. It's the Four Noble Truths, actually, now that you th I think about it. It's, it's exactly the same thing as you recognize suffering. This is what the Buddha taught, first started teaching. You recognize your suffering. You see that there are causes to the suffering, in this case, resistance. Okay. You see that there's an end to the suffering when there's release. And then you act. That's the Eightfold Path. You act from that place of surrender. And when that happens, there's a certain relentless, a relentlessness to your ability to offer up an appropriate response to whatever shows up in life. And that appropriate response is one that comes from generosity as opposed to greed. Instead of a quid pro quo, you instead are looking at something far more, far more powerful, which is essentially opening, offering, giving. Not to get anything, but just to give. And this goes back to what I was speaking about prior to our sitting. If we begin to look at enlightenment as this flowering, this, if you will, a flower that has always been there. It has never not been a full, open flower. That's what enlightenment is. Our work as meditators is to bring that bloom into the world. We do that by recognizing our struggle, by truly recognizing where it is we're getting stuck, by truly recognizing our suffering You got to start there. Doesn't mean you have to relive every pain you ever went through. That's not, it, it means though that you have to recognize where it is that things are getting sticky for you. In that awareness, in that awareness, you can then notice your resistance. If you can notice your resistance, if you, if you can notice your refusal at kind of an extreme, or your 
kind of apprehensive quasi-avoidance, if you can recognize that, if you can recognize your full-fledged doubt, if you can recognize it and see your resistance, okay, you're now looking at the cause of your suffering. The cause, uh, one of the first Dharma talks I ever heard was when this uh, short little bald guy was talking about your craving. He would always do that with his hand. I know I talk with my hands incessantly, but this guy, it's like he was painting with his hands whenever he'd talk. And I would say, all of your suffering is caused by your craving. And it stuck uh, as much as I didn't want to believe it because my craving was what fueled my strive, which was what fueled my success. And that was going fine until somebody asked, well, how's that going for you? How's that success going for you? It sucks. But if I just hang on, that's the opposite of what the teaching tells us. Instead of hanging on, it's like, begin to recognize it. Begin to see resistance patterns. Where do you push away? Can you see it? Sometimes it's really subtle. Sometimes it's overt. But looking at where you're like, nope, that's a sign of attachment. That's certitude. It's just, I'm sure it's not that. That's still certitude. That's as, that's as much certitude as, I'm sure it's that. It's still sure. Instead of being infused with wonder, our experience is suddenly confined to our own sense of what is true. And the teaching reminds us again and again and again that our own personal sense of what is true is so infinitesimally small compared to the absolute truth that goes beyond our version that we, we, we stop tilling the field in that moment. Even though we may think we are, what we do is we actually let weeds grow. There comes a point when we recognize so fully that things aren't going right that uh, <laughs> resistance is futile and we give up and that's when it starts. That's when the fun really begins. It's when we kind of give up. It's when we kind of let go, but really let go. Not partial, so that we can remain kind of okay. We let go to the point where our whole world is allowed to what looks like the ego, it looks to the ego like turning upside down. We allow everything to just go. And the ego rails. Don't you dare. I got you here. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. I doubt this will work. <laughs> and in that kind of fearlessness, in that, if you will, faith that the universe will provide, we then are able to recognize the last step, which is the engage, how we can engage in the world. We engage in the world from that place of release. It doesn't mean we don't go after things. We do, I hope. But we just do it from a different perspective. We have an entirely different relationship to what is. 
Instead of things being seen as threats or problems, suddenly things are seen as situations and indeed opportunities. Instead of our re resistance patterns kind of co-opting our experience again and again and again, we start seeing that our resistance patterns are just that, resistance patterns. We want pleasure. And so our resistance patterns are put in place to give us pleasure, at least to give us familiarity, which sometimes is confused with pleasure. The uh, old cliche comes up, the devil you know. We will oftentimes go with something that is indeed dysfunctional, unhealthy, habitually um, uh, diminishing. But we'll go in that direction because to turn the other way is positively petrifying. It means that we have to actually engage from a place of generosity and openness. And that can be just too scary for the small self that's built an entire life on resisting. So egos will confuse this teaching that I'm kind of throwing your way uh, with, oh, okay, so you just say yes to everything. That's stupid. That's doubt is what that is. And no, this teaching isn't about saying yes to everything. It's saying yes to what is and then engaging. It's releasing to what is happening and recognizing it fully and not resisting what is, but in fact, engaging from a place of radical renunciation, radical surrender. Every one of us in this room has experienced that radical renunciation. Another name for it is love. Every one of us has experienced that that not knowing, that just kind of fountain of the huge that bursts from us when we let go. So um, these are really, really cool things to kind of play with during the week. Every single one of our problems, whatever we, however we might define it, is ultimately is ultimately not a problem unless the mind is engaged in a resistance pattern called script writing. Okay? It's writing a script of it. Now that's a problem. I will now label that as a problem. Instead of, there's a situation. Huh, I wonder what the appropriate response would be. What would be the most generous response to give in relationship to this situation? That opens us. And it has the potential of opening others, opening our world, because we become a conduit to the infinite, or to spirit, or to God. And that's that field that gets tilled. That's the arrow that tends to go straight. The one that isn't encumbered by what is small in us, but one that is consciously inviting what is big and available all the time in, through, and with everyone. And that's how we integrate the awakening. That's how we live 
a life of the Enlightenment. Any questions? In the back there. Yes. If you're very connected to me, and even I doubt there'll be any seats left in the movie theater. Mm -hmm. Sort of, I I live there a lot, and it feels as though it's clear. Right. It isn't exactly the same thing. Doubt, the reason why I refer to doubt as being wonder with an attitude, the attitude is one of negativity. Doubt invariably is negative. And so what it does is it awakens this... I mean, our negativity is either dormant, alive, or full throttle, high octane, hello, here I am. Right? And so what doubt does is it keeps that negativity, which is simply the second step I was talking about, resistance, it keeps it alive and well, nourishes it. Wonder, on the other hand, couldn't care less about whether this is good or bad. I wonder if there'll be any seats left. Huh, that would be interesting. What if my date has to sit over there and I have to sit over here? That would be interesting. Doubt would say, there are not gonna be any seats left. I'm probably gonna have to sit on the other side of the theater. My life sucks. Really? (laughs) Does your life suck? Now, that obviously is a pretty innocuous innocuous example. Yet at the same time, doubt will always come from that negativity. And that negativity is actually fear-based. We always fear of something specific that could happen in the future. So if our orientation, our habitual orientation is future mind, we tend to have fear. You know, if we're not living presently with what is, if instead we're always thinking about, okay, got to remember to, uh, if only, uh, you know, if we're always in that space, what we're doing is we're literally building um, a life in a very fragile way. It's kind of a house of cards because it is all built on what hasn't happened yet. What we want to happen, outcomes, right? And outcomes are always surprises at least they have the potential to be not only surprises, but gifts. But we can wreck it. And we can wreck it by really squeezing on to, by clinging, by craving, by hanging on to an expectation or a picture that we've, I want it to look this way, you know? And so since that may or may not happen, fear starts. And then a way to anesthetize us from the eventual non-achievement of whatever outcome it is we want, we will doubt. So what it does is it creates a softening to the blow that eventually comes. What would happen if (laughs) we didn't start that process? That's Buddhism. Were you next, young lady? Yes. Concrete, so I look at it in terms of my life. Um, 
month or so, we've been dealing with um, a series of ongoing crises with my 12-year-old daughter. Right. And I have an ex-husband. It's definitely an ex for reason. <laughs> anyway, so it's it's really a practice of kind of it is letting go. Mm -hmm. um, it's this constant letting go and. There's this, I guess my question Your daughter is constantly yeah. antagonizing? Yeah. She's, she, it sounds like she's in a situation that's absolutely untenable for anybody caught in the middle of that, yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. Well, and so she's acting out. Big away from her. And, gotcha. Um, a relationship. And she's acting out big time. So it's like I'm trying to be, I'm, I feel like I'm doing really well and I'm being grounded and I can say I don't know and all that. But there's this fear that keeps cre creeping in that if I continue just to kind of try to be in the presence, things are going to snowball on me. Mm -hmm. So how do I deal with trying to be present and trying to be open? And then there's this kind of, in the back of my head, it's like, yeah, but what if she did it? Right. So you're having the what if attack? Yeah. So the it's really hard to stay present with her. Yeah, it's, it is hard to stay present with somebody when you have fear. Um, sitting on your shoulder. Sitting on your shoulder. And fear, once again, is going to be looking at a potential outcome that hasn't happened yet, right? Mm -hmm. So just to deconstruct what you, what you just talked about, the fear that you have is that something bad's going to happen based on the decisions that you have made as a mother, right? Your fear, it sounds like. Or that I'm letting, I'm not being so controlling, I'm just kind of being present. Right. Being present doesn't mean that you don't throw down rules. Oh, no, I'm not saying. Okay. Being present, being present means you're there for the entire experience as it is. Mm -hmm. Okay? In fact, that's a great definition of enlightenment. Enlightenment, one could argue, is basically being fully present for this moment as it is. And then for this moment as it is. Oh, and then this one. And then this. So it's a continuance of total presence. Now, total presence means you're going to act from a place of generosity. And the generosity is always going to point you towards and everyone you connect with towards openness, towards consciousness. So if, for instance, your goal is to, um, is to bring a, deepen, a, a deepened awareness to yourself and to, in this case, your daughter, what happens? Well, what you've done is you've actually increased consciousness for both of you. If, on the other hand, your goal is to make her happy, and I'm not saying this situation is about making her happy, but if it's about making her happy, you are keeping her small. So as long as your generosity is informing the choices that you make, there really isn't a lot of room for fear. Horrible stuff may happen. Great stuff may happen. You really don't have much control over that, but the great stuff will be totally dependent on the choices you make in the present moment, won't right? It's like there's this conflict I'm experiencing between trying to be present and open and the fear on my shoulder. Right. And so that has nothing to do with your daughter. That has everything to do with your relationship to that voice. Do you let it run? Or do you witness, bring your attention to it, and in doing so, does that actually 
help you disidentify from it. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, report back. Okay. Yeah. By the way, I'll, I'll be calling you in around 13 years, okay? Is that a deal? Got a deal? Okay. Because <laughs> right now my daughters are just precious angels. This was a good one. Dada, I like mama better. And that was for my four-month-old. And she said it in Japanese, which is, we have her on tapes she's listening to when she sleeps. <laughs> I like mama better. Oh, that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> anyway, any other questions? Yes, sir. So, on and on, but, but it's not driving us crazy. <laughs> Are we expecting it, the, 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 the negative voice, the fearful voice, the voice of doubt? Are we expecting it to go away, uh, go away number one? Uh, and then the second part was, just so I'm really clear, was are we, ex are we just supposed to experience it? Is that? Yes. Yeah. And the answer is both and. Okay? In other words, there's nothing that won't go away. Everything is temporary. Everything is interdependent. And everything is utterly and totally infinite at its core. That's the, the, what, what I was really trying to get at, which I'm sort of realizing yeah. as saying this, is I seem to feel like I'm trying to make it go away. And I think I've tried to make it make it go away for a while and it sort of seems like that's not that's not the practice. That's not the practice. Because what you're doing is you're attaching to whatever you want to make go away, you're attaching to non it. <laughs> ah and the right? Instead you face it without flinching. Knowing full well it is gonna go away. And experiencing it fully Witnessing it totally, because in that witnessing, in that process of witnessing your fear, witnessing your anger, witnessing your doubt, that witness is free from anger, doubt, all of it. We start actually creating a different, we recenter our, uh, our gravity, our psychological center of gravity. And what happens is, the more we do that, the more we decenter, so to speak, the less that doubt, fear, anger, whatever it happens to be, has a hold on us. So not only does it become temporary and fleeting, and we see it for that, 
when it arises, it's no longer something we are compelled to act upon. And this then begins this rehabituation, this, 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 uh, re, this, this new perspective begins to kind of unfold. Now, does it mean that, oh, we will no longer have doubt or fear again? No, it may very well arise, but you're no longer caught by it. Yeah, you're not compelled to do anything. You know, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm really glad you like that. Now, make sure you hang on to that with all your might <laughs> and see where it takes you. Because <laughs> it's probably going to get you into all sorts of suffering if you hang on to it. I mean, it's not that I'm not glad you... I love the fact that you like it, but... I've already forgotten what it was. Excellent. <laughs> it worked. I just talked him right out of that attachment. <laughs> yeah, but you, actually, Dave, I, I mean, I love giving you grief about stuff like this uh, and everybody else. I mean, it's really true. I mean, uh, have you ever noticed when you, when you go into, whether it's a talk that I'm giving or somebody else is giving, you're like, you're like ready for the pearl. You know, you're just waiting. It's like, aha, I got it. Oh, wow, that was really good. That was really, stop that. Just let it wash over you. And then forget everything I said. Everything I said, let go of all of it. Okay? That's the shortcut. Besides, it'll help me because I know I contradict myself at least once every six weeks. It'll keep me, you know, a little bit more, um, it'll give me more street cred if you forget everything I say. Of course, they are on podcast, so that's, I guess, kind of screws it all up. But kidding aside, um, it's, it's, really, it's, it's really bizarre kind of how we kind of come into a Dharma talk or Dharma discussion or whatever to give us handles to hold the baggage with. And the, the teaching is actually the opposite of that. It's let go, whatever that baggage might look like, whatever your certitude might be, whatever... Uh, uh, you know, you, you feel like you can grip. Please, just let it go. That's, that, that really is actually the teaching. So with that said, uh, any more questions? Do, yeah. Do I understand then if, there, I don't, as a Buddhist, you don't pray because you're just supposed to deal with it? Um, well, I mean, I, I guess pray, praying is kind of interesting because if prayer usually is some type of negotiation right. with some deity that may or may not exist, but at least your mind believes that it could, couldn't hurt to kind of go in that direction. I think prayer, when it's like a centering prayer, which is largely like meditation, it's about openness, God work through me, um, as opposed to God give me something. That implies that God is somehow separate from you. And for us to be separate from God is a deeply egoic move, which then makes us small, right? So perhaps instead of prayer, where we are talking to God, so to speak, um, the best thing, best maybe bit of uh, explanation I could give would be to say that uh, I do my best level best to listen 
to God as much as I can. And listening, listening, listening to God doesn't mean I'm hearing voices. Listening to God means I'm utterly and completely available to whatever the infinite is asking for in this very moment. Does that kind of make sense? The right questions. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 answer, the answer. Yeah, the answers are always there. And it may be one that I have to suffer with. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but the cool thing is, it's, it's not, it's the, the, the questions that you have or the situations that you have that engender suffering give us an incredible opportunity to practice. Because what the awakened approach towards this entire thing is not to go after what's pleasurable and avoid what's not pleasurable. It's to have a peace that is equal to any and all situations, whether it's pleasurable or not. And so when we are in a situation that lacks that juicy pleasurableness, like the one for me, the one I, I really have a hard time... Um, uh, I should say, I used to have a much harder time waiting in line. Okay? I understand. I, yeah, I say, whether it's like, you know, I'm going skiing or whether I'm in the grocery store or in the bank, it's waiting in line, to, right? But what a great place to practice. Go into your body in that moment. Feel this life as it is now on these skis, in this store, at this bank whatever it happens to be. We start with that small stuff and suddenly we're no longer irritable, you know, when we get to the teller. Hi, how are you? Fine. You know, it's, it's not, we're, we're no longer in that space, okay? And from there, we go to, let's say, getting to the movie theater late or dealing with a partner that is habitually late, not that I have that problem at all. <laughs> But it's great practice, right? You become very intimate with your experience. And you can communicate with people from a place that's open as opposed to, damn it, we're late again. Or, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I know that kind of took us out and away from prayer. But it's a, it's a very, very powerful practice when you can start developing that, what we call equanimity, regardless of whether it's good or bad, you're still there without flinching, without hiding, without running another direction. That's where suffering is born, when we ditch. Mm -hmm. Suffering cannot exist when we are fully present with what is. When we are fully present with our pain, it's no longer pain. It's intensity. When we run from it, we give it a name. And that's called pain. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, beautiful. Yeah, well, so you mean how do we apply equanimity, the teaching of equanimity to like say the news? Yeah. And yeah. Doubt and right. And surrender and right. You know, are well, first of all, the most helpful thing is to recognize that in the business of news, when we look at, when we look at the uh, the various media at our disposal, their job is to catch us, right? And so perhaps one of the most enlightening things about the news is recognizing that nearly every story is about 
one of the violations of one of the precepts, or if you're you know, an Old Testament person, the Ten Commandments. Almost every single major news story is about a violation of something that we hold to be ethical, moral, right? Or we could look at it even more simply. Everything on the news is about harm or potential harm. Okay? And so when we start seeing everything on the news as being about harm or potential harm, what we can do is start looking at the motive of the particular viewpoint. Is this particular viewpoint about sales? In other words, catching eyeballs. I have found it very difficult, for instance, to watch news that either supports a position that I have or one that is antithetical to a position that I find myself holding, right? Because what do they do? They generate those feelings not only of doubt, but more importantly, anger. And that's exactly what they're designed to do because that will get you to watch them more, especially if they can get you to fear. So if they can get you to fear, they, you know, the news media can, get, can pretty much just hook Hook, hook you, but you have to allow those hooks to occur. So the first step, they're going to love that I say this too, the first step is watching the news hour. Instead of watching Fox, CNN, or MSNBC, if you watch the news hour, you don't have corporate interests, and Jim Lehrer is about as threatening as a blade of grass. And he's intelligent, and he surrounds himself with very intelligent people. Okay? Now, does that mean there's no bias there? Of course there's bias. There's no, no such thing as non-bias, but when we can allow for the communication to inform a generous response, we're golden. And when you get good at that, when you get good at the news hour, then feel free, please, to watch Fox or anything else that allows you to actually look at your own sense of tribal centrism, your own, I mean, it's, re it's really interesting. It doesn't mean, mom, that you can't, you can't go into the world being, if you will, informed about issues, but can you be informed about issues from a place of wonder as opposed to certitude? And that doesn't mean, oh, I know nothing or I'm neutral, just call me Switzerland. Instead, it's, huh, what's now my generous response to this story? And that tends to guide us into a direction where we become agents of peace and understanding as opposed to warriors or something like that. <laughs>